Well, Nina, more audio medicine on Straight Outta Combat Radio. Jason Justice from the Justice Distillery, Justice Label Distillery. Um, very passionate man. Uh, father of three, served his country, wounded in action, comes back. And something that you mentioned to me about, you know, wanting to just help people still, you know, and he gets into his industry of making moonshine and started a network and he's just pushing on and doing what he does best. Having three generations that have served, I think, I think they have every American conflict that we've been in covered between the three of them. It's just amazing the history and, and what they've contributed to this country. You know, it's obviously transpired into who he is and what he does now even in business and you know he was sharing with us about business and there's a saying that you your business only grows to the extent that you do and he's made that a passion and wants to help people and help other people grow as he's grown and you know you're right he's very passionate in what he does and stand-up guy great points nina you know it's a pleasure being here with you today also and i just want to Thank the listeners for tuning in to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, where we honor veteran wisdom. Um, we take this serious, and uh, we hope that uh, somebody out there listening can walk away with a, with a good tidbit of how to live their lives in a better way. Thank you, Nina. You're welcome. Thank you, John. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. Welcome to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero, where we honor freedom to improve business. Straight Out of Combat Radio is the platform, the voice for veterans to share their personal stories, and we honor their wisdom. And we want to diminish the negative stereotypes of veterans. My name is John Krotek. I'm a U.S. Army veteran, and I was an NBC NCO. And I'm Nina Herman, U.S. Army veteran, and I was a finance officer. Our combat veteran for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is Mr. Jason Justice. He uh, is a very interesting guy, comes from a very interesting family, a hardworking family, but a family that's steeped in military tradition. Uh, he's with the Justice Label Distillery out in Texas, Corpus Christi, and we are honored to have him here. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about him, and then uh, we'll get started with his story. We're just happy to have him here. He earned a Bronze Star Medal. While serving in Iraq between 2010 and 2011 for his actions as a convoy commander, their convoy actually took an IED hit in April 2011. With the help of Iraqi police and Iraqi defense forces, a high-profile individual was captured as they recorded the attack. Um, he spent a week in the hospital at Joint Base Balad as a result of that day. He's 80% disabled today, but, you know, it hasn't held him back. He's a hardworking guy, very, very busy at his family's distillery, like I just mentioned, out in Texas. And uh, we're going to talk a lot more about what he's doing, but we want to hear a little bit more about his family, what he's made of, and and then we'll talk about uh, a little bit about his military, and then we want his messages and what he's doing today. So welcome, sir. Thanks for having me, John. You know? Well, we're glad you're here. You know, we, you and I have gone round and round for a little while. We, you know, we're both very busy, and... I'm uh, first of all, thank you for taking this call because you just told us that you just had your third son, and wow, I'm uh, congratulations on that. And I know your wife's in the in the army as well, another officer, and uh, I just uh, very happy for you on, and just you know wish you the best. Thanks. Yeah, he came out good and healthy, eight pound baby boy, and uh, he's he's the smallest one we've had yet. So, <laughs> uh, 
our first one was 8.6 and the other one was 8.11 and he was just eight right on the dot. So my wife's a little bit thankful for that. (laughs) (laughs) Does that have anything to do with the corn out there in Texas? I don't know. We're, we're just, we're just big people, you know, we're, we're big in heart and, and big in life. That's awesome. So tell us about the justice family. I mean, you, I looked over, I'd rather, you know, I want to hear, I, we could read it, but we don't want to read it. And you were telling me that you were raised by a first sergeant or was he a first sergeant or command sergeant major? He, he was first sergeant. He, he didn't make it to the, uh, the political level of command sergeant major yet. He decided to retire at uh, 24 years from, from the military. So he did about 14 years of active duty and he, Met my mom while he ETS in Germany. Actually, my mom worked at the uh, Porsche Audi plant as a uh, upholsterer. They ended up having me, and then moving back over here to the states, and we kind of bumped around for a while as he looked for a job. You know, transitioning wasn't any easier back in the '80s than it was, you know, now for these these guys coming back. Uh, you know, it's, it's all about finding where the work is and then getting there. So eventually, we we ended up from Pensacola, Florida, St. Louis, Missouri, San Antonio, and finally down here, my, my father got a job at the Corpus Christi Army Depot where he uh, they kind of forced him back into the reserves because he was part of the Miltec program uh, for the position. And one of those, those conditions is you have to maintain a, uh, a service obligation in order to keep that civil service job. When you know it, uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield broke out uh, right there, and, and he got pulled away in 91 and was gone for about two and a half, three years altogether, uh, deployed with the uh, 887th Quartermaster Company over here out of Sinton and Alice, Texas. Now, were you in college when that was going on? or uh, When that was going on, I was in. I was still a little kid. I was in grade school uh, during 91. We had came over to the United States in 1989 and i was two or three years old at the time i remember i was i was about five or six when my dad uh went on his first deployment and you know i was just i missed my uh my my dad you know i mean it it was it was tough growing up with a military family like that but i wasn't wasn't the only one we had like a we lived in kind of a retirement community so I had a lot of surrogate grandparents in the little cul-de-sac that we lived in, which was pretty nice. We fostered some some long-time family relationships uh, with these people that just kind of helped me and my mom and my older sister out. You know, really a, a village coming together to, to raise kids, you know, for, for that period of our lives. And just always, I just remember always looking up to my dad, you know, and getting getting the photos of him. Uh, wearing the, the chocolate chips over there overseas and you'd get on the phone, you know, maybe once a week, you'd be able to talk to us. There wasn't really a whole lot of letter writing like you would, you would think, uh, happening at that time. Uh, probably cause I was so little, you know, and so couldn't, couldn't read or write at that point. It was just, uh, you know, wearing his uniform, wearing his hats and stuff, pretending to be a soldier in the yard. And, and that's kind of how I, I grew up with that. And when he came back, it was, pretty difficult because he he had suffered a uh, uh, back injury he fell into a it was like an embankment for some generators during a sandstorm and, and ended up slipping a couple of discs in his back and then they also they faced a lot of chemical exposure over there mm. 
stuff like that. So it was, uh, you know, my dad came home and then he just kind of sat around and couldn't do a whole lot, had a spinal fusion. And, you know, it's, it's really hard on, on, you know, a child growing up. And I try to avoid that with my own, my own three sons now, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm disabled as well. And I, I, I kind of, now that I'm older, I, I can relate to my dad better than when I was a kid and not understanding and just being mad, you know, that I didn't have somebody to play catch with and stuff like that. Mm. But I mean, it, it's kind of important to know, I think either way, you know, growing up with a disabled veteran father and being a disabled, becoming a disabled veteran, a lot of it is how you think about it. You know, you, if you, if you really want to get out and do stuff, you're, you're going to try and find a way you're going to try to find a way to connect. And a lot of that comes to your support network and, and what, what they can do to help you. Cause you know, there's, there's obviously people out there worse off than me, you know, they're, they're amputees and, and they, they can't get around. They have travel restrictions and stuff like that. And those are, are, you know, they're relying a lot more on outside people and it's okay to accept that help, you know? And, and for me, it was, kind of one of those those things where you know growing up for the majority of my childhood without dad you know i was seeking approval from a lot of other outside sources and so i was i was really good at building a support network for myself when it came time for me to face my own challenges and you know definitely asking for help and not bottling it up inside we see a lot of uh, veteran suicides just because of they're not communicating or acknowledging that they need assistance with something or they say, I can fight through it, or I've been through this. I can handle that. And really my, my biggest, uh, crutch that I lean on is my wife. You know, she's a, a service member as well. Actually, I wouldn't even have met her if it weren't for the IED that put me in the hospital for a week because that, that week in the hospital ended up putting me on about, uh, 50 or 60 days of, uh, light duty. So I was on basically running missions from the talk for, for the company. At that point, I just was, uh, really driven to get back out there and, and start working. And she was working at the MCT and I, I worked, uh, for one of the transportation units and then kind of as a liaison for the, the trans battalion at that point. Well, it's a, you know, it's a great you know, thing that, that you, it's a great thing that you point out that, you know, that when, if you are in that place, that is not, uh, you're not weak if you, if you ask for help and, and, you know, you, you probably understated it, but to have that support network, you know, and you learn that early on and, it, you know, it's no surprise to me that you've, you know, not without our challenges, but you've come through with basically flying colors. And uh, that's an inspiration to so many people out there, Jason. Yeah, man. Well, we're, we're taught, you know, it's like beat into us, into the military, you know, to, to always, go to your sergeant or go to, go to your, your commander or, you know, go somewhere. They're always referring you somewhere. And it, it's kind of odd to me that we get out and we forget that, that, you know, we didn't do anything ourselves. Everything was the result of asking somebody else for help or getting told to go somewhere else to get somebody else's help, you know, and it, it's just, uh, you know, it, it surprises me a lot of times that they're not reaching out for help. Cause I mean, what were you doing all the time? You were always around people. You're always talking to people. You, the main 
thing that we long for after we get out of the military is that camaraderie. And it's still there, you know, among veterans and, and the veteran community. Everybody's looking for it. And it just makes sense that we should just, you know, pick up the phone, call one another, talk to talk to each other. I've got several buddies that that's all we do. You know, we've been we met several years ago. We may have only worked together once or twice, like in the same operation or, or whatever. But, you know, we'll pick up the phone and call each other, you know, every 90 days or, or six months, you know, and just be like, hey, what's going on with your family? Everything going good? What are you up to? It's just good to, to keep that communication open, especially when you're you're going to that dark place or know that you're going to your dark place that, hey, I need to, to get some help or I need to get my mind off of this or where's where's this, the person I can talk to? You know, even if you, you were in combat, and you lost your friend or your battle buddy or, you know, somebody you saw somebody die. It's it wasn't just you. You know, there's not a. It, it would be very rare if you were the lone survivor uh, of something like that, you know, and reach out to those other people that were there with you, you know, and, and they're, they're probably the best people to communicate because they were there. Not everybody was uh, a combat veteran. And it, it's important to realize that, that, you know, just because somebody was deployed to combat or combat zone, you know, th- it doesn't, doesn't mean they were, they were there getting shot at or something like that. And it's kind of a big thing I I see on the the veteran community side where we kind of downplay, you know, the the other ones, you you know, we got infantry bashing, you know, transporters and and vice versa. And and we do the the little jokes among the branches and all that. And that's, that's the camaraderie piece, you know, and that's, and that's what a lot of people are missing is that it's not so much, you know, I was, I was infantry and I'm better than you. Well, I mean, if you were an infantry guy, you're going to disagree with me, obviously. But, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the 1% of the 1%, basically. So, yeah, they, they've got a little bit tougher, and, and they see a lot more than we do. But it's, it's still, we were all in the same operation. We still had the same restrictions we had to face, you know, as far as being away from our families, being away from society. Mm. And it's important to not feel that isolation again you know, once you're, once you're home. Definitely, you know, some great points. You know, one thing that's, it's interesting when that, when I hear you describe it, and I'm sure that we can all relate to this that have been in and worn the uniform, but it, how you can talk to a World War II veteran, a Vietnam veteran, a Korean veteran, somebody throughout all the, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, and there is a, there is a camaraderie and it's a, and it is a language and, you know, I'm amazed at how you can talk to guys, you know, that maybe serve 20 years apart, but they still have that bond. And you're right. You know, you're the first person that I've interviewed on Straight Outta Combat Radio that has said, you're not the only survivor, you know. And if you're in that place, reach out to your buddies, uh, men and women that you've served with, because they're probably going through some of the same things you might be going through. That's great. That's a great viewpoint. Do you feel there's, you know, just the strength and the power of of our military and, and the idea that you have to have that front? Do you think that that has hindered people from, you know, thinking that they're weak for asking for help? I don't I don't know really where that comes from, because it, it's it's not I mean, part of it's like a macho thing. But I also see it in our, our female veterans, too. It, it almost seems like they have a little bit more to prove uh, a lot of times. And, you know, having a wife that is also, you know, an, an officer and a, and a soldier too. It's kind of, I get to see that 
a little bit differently than, than most others do. And I, I kind of have to give her advice a little bit more because, you know, she's like, well, I've got this problem going on and, and you know, should I tell my boss about, about this or that? And, you know, for me, I'm, I, I can only look at it from a male officer's point of view, especially from an administrative standpoint, because we're, we're a completely different animal from, from the enlisted side of the house. And, and the enlisted guys don't really get to see it until they start hitting E7 and, and, and above. Even the E6s start seeing it a little bit once they get to platoon sergeant roles. But, you know, it's like we've got this doctrine and they, these textbook answers, but the militaries are also flexible enough to adjust where it needs to in order to, to facilitate mission accomplishment. And, and definitely one of those big things is, you know, being in a safe, safe work environment, especially if you're, you're doing like a stateside deployment or even an overseas deployment, you know, we've got to look out for each other. You know, uh, one of the big things that, it, that has come out in the veteran community is, you know, the sharp training and the sexual harassment uh, stuff. And, and I think a lot of that kind of stems back to, the asking for help and, and, you know, being taken seriously on, on a lot of those counts. Uh, really, you know, we, we get built, built up that, you know, civilians are looking at us in a certain way that, that, yeah, we're strong and we're, you know, indomitable when it comes to certain things, but we're, we're still at our core people and, you know, people have emotions, people have, health problems, people have all those things. We're, we're not, you know, supermen. We're not, we're not to that point yet where we're genetically modified super soldiers like they put on TV all the time. And it's, it's just not like that. The reality is we're, we're people that chose to put on a uniform that went through a regimen of conditioning in order to do a certain job. That's why we relate better with each other because we've been through the same trials and tribulations to get to that point in our life but once we're we're done with that job and we're moving on we face you know the basically the the same challenges that a civilian would face after they retire or they get separated from doing a job that they had done for for 10 10 years or five years it's just a little bit different because we we try to we try to justify a little bit more by saying well i'm a veteran so i should i should get more or i should get something or i fought for the country you know, and, and it's, it's an entitlement mentality that kind of gets stuck. And, and we see it more with the the later generations. You, you don't hear it so much. You never heard it from the World War II guys. World War II guys just came back, integrated. Heck, they started running the country. And then the Vietnam guys, you, you saw it a little bit different, but there was also different conditions going on during that time. We were drafted during that point. I mean, it, it was a lot of people forced into that role of doing something that they necessarily weren't 100% behind. And then the generation after them, it was an all volunteer army. And then, and then somewhere during that phase uh, on the back end, it became, well, now it's just a way to pay for college or it's a way to get a discount or good credit or, or, you know, pay off your loans. And, and these people didn't anticipate having to actually go fight a conflict, you know, a, a lot of them uh, that joined, they were just looking to get a jump start somewhere else in their life. Because, uh, I mean, even if you're making, you know, $30,000 a year, you're overseas, you're not, you're not spending it. 
you know, it's not, it's not really going anywhere unless you have a family that, that you're, you're paying to support and you are like, Hey, I have no option. I, I need to go. Cause this is, this is gainful employment, yeah. you know, it's a guaranteed paycheck, which is, which is fine. You know, that's my father had to do a lot of things to, to support, you know, our family growing up. And that was one of them. And, you know, I see it now because I've, I've worked in the military, I've worked oil fields and now I own my own business. And, and for me, I like the flexibility and the freedom and I'm, I'm at the finally at the point in my career where I can say, I want to get out tomorrow and I can just, I can basically resign anytime I want and I'm done with the military or I can keep it there because I, I actually, I enjoy my job, you know, and I like going and I like helping and I do, I do a pretty important uh, function for the logistics community uh, on the military side. So it's, it gives me my little, my my feeling of validation, you know, that I'm, I'm going and I'm helping and I'm making a difference still. And it also gives my family, you know, a nice influx of money. And for my wife, she, she's looking at it the same way. It, it's, it's a job. It's something she enjoys doing and she, she feels good with the work that she does and the contribution that she makes to, her mission and, and her, her brigade and what they're doing. So let's, let's you back. know, that, that's why let's yeah. go back a little bit. Let's go back a little bit and just, you know, those are some great viewpoints. One thing that you did point out, you know, the reasons why people go, but I think it's interesting that, that maybe a greater majority of people in these, in these recent conflicts went in basically maybe to pay off a student loan or they didn't really expect to, to do what they ended up doing. But it was a natural progression for you. It seems like Jason that you that you went in because you know your dad and you know the, uh, the the communities that you grew up in, and so you found yourself in Iraq after you went through school. I know that my co-host was laughing because I think I had my dates messed up, and I'm thinking he's in college at six years old. That can't happen. But t- <laughs> no. t- tell us. No, actually, actually, I, I just turned thirty, so oh. I. I, uh, yeah. And I'm going on 10 years in the military. So I actually, I commissioned, uh, right, right after my 21st birthday. Uh, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of a, a, <laughs> an understatement. You know, everybody kind of looks, they're like, wow, that's a really young lieutenant. You know, that was, that was me. But uh, as soon as I opened my mouth and started talking, it was, I always got like strange looks and questions like, were you prior service? You know, did you enlist? And I was like, no, I was, I was just raised by, you know, and I tell them who my dad was and a lot of people around here either deployed with him or they knew, knew what he did or, or where he was. And, you know, he, he was well, well respected in, in his circles. And it, it was kind of like, you know, I had, I had to get off those coattails pretty quickly and, you know, just make my own career and my, my own, uh, my own name for myself, basically, you know, my, my grandfather, uh, the one that actually I get the, the moonshine recipes from, he was uh, underage at the end of World War II, and he had taken his mom down to go in and sign off the paper so he could enlist at 16. So he, he enlisted in the Army at 16, right at the end of World War II. Didn't get to go anywhere, did, didn't do anything with it, but you know he was just like, I, I need to go support my country and, and do something. And he stayed in for, for his, his little tour that he, that he did. I think it was, uh, eight years was the contract that he had gotten back then. 
And by that time, the uh, Army Air Corps broke off and made the Air Force. So he enlisted in the Army, and he ETS Air Force. And he was a, a medic the, the entire time uh, of his career. He was in the medical field. And, you know, during, during that point, it was everybody was coming back. People were adjusting to, to the country, and there was still a big need for alcohol. So he was making it. Cousins were making it. He was running it. He was dropping it off, you know, from uh, West Virginia. He'd go over to Portsmouth. Virginia and Norfolk shipyard and, and sell it, you know, to the sailors and everything and talking to them because he, he already had being a veteran. He had that rapport, you know, he knew the language. He knew how to, how to talk to these guys. He knew what they were doing. And, you know, it's kind of important to know that he was enlisted too. So he, he was over there just, you know, BSing with, with the other, the other guys. And they finally talked him into to joining the Navy and he decided, well, it's better than, uh, running moonshine and possibly going to jail and <laughs> better than working in coal mines, you know? So, uh, he went into the Navy and wouldn't you know it, the Korean war broke out. So he, he got to go, uh, deployment to over in the, the Pacific theater for that. And he, he started, uh, getting close to his, his end of that tour. And, and he said, well, I've already been in for, you know, 15 years. I might as well just get 20 and get a nice retirement check and, and be done with it. So he, he decided to re-up in the Navy and Vietnam broke out. And then he ended up going to uh, Pendleton and training with the Marines and he got sent as a corpsman to Vietnam. Hmm. So he was actually in all four branches. So I already had, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a big legend to live up to in my mind <laughs> as a child right there. Absolutely. And then, and you know, my father, the same way he was career, career enlisted, you know, he, he got in, he did 14 active, uh, he got, he's been court-martialed, you know, he had lost ranks, the same thing you, you'd expect from any, any old uh, enlisted guy that has been in for his entire career. You know, he's been busted up, busted down, and, and all around, and, and it was, uh, you know, something, something to look up to as well, where it was like, this, you know, this is a strong person, I, I need to, to kind of emulate these things, I want to be like them, but without the mistakes that they made, you know, and, and, and that was what he always kind of drilled into. I wanted to enlist when I was 18. I was ready to just go and do it. And, and it was more for me to, I was running away. I was wanting to get out of my house. Yeah. You know, I, I was wanting a, a change of, of pace, change of scenery. And I said, well, you know, dad did it. I can do it. And he said, nope, you're going to go to college and I'm going to pay for the first year. And if you still don't want to do anything, then you can go ahead and enlist. So I said, all right. So I did the, you know, the first year in, uh, at Del Mar here in Corpus and got some of the basics out of the way. And then I started talking to the ROTC program and it just looked like a really good deal at the time. And, hmm. you know, they, they pay you, pay you a stipend. They basically pay you to go to school. They pay for your school. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get a one up on my sister because my sister's 10 years older than me and she's got uh, a master's degree too. And, and she's just, I think she's finally paid off her student debt like two years ago. And, you know, so I was seeing this as a a 19 year old and I was like, I don't want to be racked with student debt and kind of figured it out. Right. Yeah. And and then trying to figure out, you know, what I'm going to do. Cause I knew, I knew at some point I wanted to have a family. Uh, I just didn't know when or who with at the time. And, 
you know, but it was just seeing, you know, the, the mistakes around you and from your community. And that's why it's good to have a network because you, you learn from other people's mistakes. You don't have to go through them all yourself. And I was, I was a hard head for a little while. I had to make my own mistakes on, on some things. And it's just, it, it's a lot less painful and it saves you so much time and money if you just listen to somebody who's been where you are before, you know, and sometimes and sometimes thing. that's easier said than done i mean sometimes it, it is <laughs> you know i remember my dad my dad was a 28 year army officer and i'll tell you jason he you know some of it's spoken and some of it's unspoken he could just give you a, a glance and you know learn my way and sometimes that didn't yeah. work you know so it is easier said than done yeah so so i mean there i found myself uh Graduating at the end of uh, 2009 from from Kingsville as a second lieutenant with no no unit, nobody helped me find anything. I actually I went I went down the road here in Corpus and I found a local brigade and I uh, said, "Hey, do y'all got a spot for me? I just graduated or I'm graduating in, in two weeks." And they placed me with a, a transportation company that I would later, uh, three years later, no, actually four years later, become the commander of. So they placed me there and then they said, Hey, there's a deployment coming up. Uh, do you want to go to that? And I said, well, uh, not really. And they said, well, it's too bad. We need officers. So you're going <laughs> and you're a transportation officer. So I was like, okay, great. And then it, it ended up being a, a pretty good thing. I flew with the unit out of Brownsville and I made, I made a lot of lifelong friends and, and I mentored a lot of these guys. I picked up a couple mentors myself and we, you know, we got to live together for a good 400 days you know, doing missions. And these guys, I still talk to them regularly. You know, I've got one of them is like my company's biggest fan. Like he, he lives down in McAllen. Every chance he comes up or he goes through going to Houston, he'll stop by the distillery and we'll just, you know, talk about it, talk about the old days. And he wasn't even like in my platoon. He was a headquarters guy. He was a combo guy, but I took him on one mission and we went downtown Baghdad and we were supporting another unit out of Fort Riley, Kansas, moving some tanks around. We were closing down uh, Fob Delta, actually, and a head breaks down in the in right in those roundabouts in downtown Baghdad, and it's like ten o'clock at night or eleven o'clock at night. Let people let and, let them know what that is. Tell <laughs> tell us what that is. Uh, so it's a heavy equipment transport. It's what we used to move the, the A one Abrams and striker vehicles and all those things because it's just not cost effective or, or fuel effective to drive a tank across the country. We, we pick it up and we move it and then it only drives like four or five miles to, to wherever it needs to go uh, to do its mission. So they're, they're gigantic. I mean, they're about 16 feet high. They've got, uh, you know, sleeping cots in the back. Think of it like a, 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 a giant Peterbilt, but two of them stuck side by side. You know, and that's pretty much what a head is, uh, as far as terms of power and, and size. And then they, they've got a, a large low boy trailer type thing. It has, I think, what, 16 axles on it, hmm. uh, like 30, 36 tires. And man, you pop them all the time. Uh, we were changing a lot of tires in the rack. This, this one breaks down and we have to swap out. So we, we, we pull it off and we, we, we pull that one onto the recovery vehicle. And we get the, the new one set up and going, and we're just about to pull out. And then they say, antenna for the 
the counter IED system was still up on the one that we just recovered. And we would basically smack into a bridge if this, uh, this giant copper tube, that's all it was, was like a copper tube full of wires that, that shoots out interruptive, uh, jamming stuff. Uh, it was a warlock system. So if he didn't bend, if we didn't bend that down, the vehicle sitting up on top of the trailer was too high. It would smack through bridges and power lines and lights. So I was just like joking and I turned to this guy and I was like, Hey, specialist Coy, you need to go out and take that antenna down. Uh, so we can get moving. And he's just like, Roger, sir, on it. And like, he jumps out of the head and just goes and, and me and the driver are there just like, are you serious? This guy just do that. He runs over there, climbs up on the back of this vehicle. And basically, you know, he, he was a, a sniper's wet dream. If, if that was the case of what was going on over there. Because he's a, a single guy standing up on on the highest point <laughs> in downtown Baghdad, <laughs> you know. And then he comes back in and, and he takes it down. And he comes back in and everybody's on the radio, like just lighting it up. Like, what is that guy doing? Is he crazy? You guys from Texas are crazy. And he comes back in and he sits down. And he's, he's like drenched in sweat and, and he's he's like, oh, can I have some water? And we're like, oh my gosh, dude, you know you you could have just like died. <laughs> he was just. That, at that point, I think it hit him, and he realized what he had done, and he just turns white as a sheet, and, and he ends up just sitting quietly in the back the rest of the time. But that is like the story that he'll just call and tell me out of, out of nowhere. He'll just call me. Something will just remind him of it, and he'll give me a call and be like, man, you remember that time you sent me out there? Like, that was, that was like the biggest thing that was so exciting, you know, and... and I'm just glad nothing happened. And, and, you know, thanks for doing it. I always reflect on that when, you know, I'm, I'm facing some kind of a trouble or I think I can't do something. I just remember that time Lieutenant Justice sent me a, in downtown Baghdad to climb up on this thing and take an antenna down. <laughs> That's a great story, you know? actually. I mean, <laughs> thank God he did make it because, you know, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Talk about a, you know, a live target. Well, just Gosh. tells about the selfless service, you know, he's going to do whatever you tell him to do for the mission yeah. for the safety of everybody else that was there. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, and I guess you just, I, sometimes you don't even know why you do things, you know, you, you get an order, you know, you want to get the mission done and you just get out and do it. So, Oh yeah. So was that before that? Obviously it was before your personal injury. What, what was that day like? That was in January when we, we did that mission. Uh, we were, we were shutting down those little fobs around Baghdad. And then we were, we were actually staying at victory for about a month doing that so he was he was like the the combo guy that was with us so it was kind of his his first time outside of our fob and, and probably the only time he would have ever had a chance to go on the road at all so so that's why i said you know what yeah we, we need a combo guy that's one of the assets i need to, to complete the mission and i brought him along so the my incident was in april and between then you know we had a couple indirect fires we got hit with uh the one of the connexes that we were hauling got shot with an RPG. Uh, so like the back end was, was blown off as we were uh, passing through. It was, I think we were passing to crit going up to Mosul when that happened. And right around the same area we were, we were, it was actually, uh, I was teaching some new drivers and TC. So I was, I was, facilitating the licensing and, and, you know, driver checks with these guys. Cause we had, you know, some new promotions around that time. So now these, these E4s became E5s and they were ready for some more responsibility. So we made them truck commanders. 
but they still had to be evaluated by uh, a senior leader of some kind. So me and the squad leaders and, and the platoon sergeant were doing these check rides with them, these ride alongs. So it was like, it was a, it was a normal, uh, it was a, a mail run up to uh, JBB actually. So it was just like, we just did it like any other day, did our safety checks, did our briefings. Everybody was spot on doing, doing what they needed to do. And we, SP and weapons hot and, and, and we're going and we were uh, going through one of the checkpoints and you know you get that feeling in your gut when something's not right or something's off you know and I'd already I've already done about 80 or 90 convoys at this point and there was just something something different about this one that I couldn't really you know put my finger on and we were slowed down. We were right on the back end of the gun truck in front of us, uh, and the rabbit was out front. The rabbit's the one that goes in and, and drives over any piles of trash and, and makes sure there's there's nothing in them. They're, they're kind of like the the sacrificial lamb, and it's it's the fun part if you're doing gun trucks, uh, I think. So they've got like a, a, a thing that they push out in front of their vehicle a couple of feet that will trigger anything so that the rest of the vehicle doesn't get damaged, uh, hopefully. So we're coming through this this uh, this checkpoint. And we're slowed down. We're 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 almost at a stop behind this gun truck, and then they start rolling. So we're we're rolling right behind them, and then it was two explosions right there, like not even 30 feet from the checkpoint, and blew out the back end of the gun truck. They had a hole about the size of a basketball it was a uh, one of those shaped charges and then they had hit our our front engine not the engine block but right before uh the engine block so it took off uh it was the passenger passenger side headlight and some of the uh rhino assembly got knocked off and it was just like the only thing i can compare it to was being inside of a soda can and somebody popped the lid, you know, it was just like, you couldn't hear anything. There was a, a massive pressure change and just everybody freaking out, you know, confusion. The, the gun truck we just saw, they kind of leered over, they drove into the ditch and then they kind of recovered and went ahead. We, we had halted because if we had gone anywhere moving wise, we would have just rear ended the, the gun truck in front of us. And so, so we were stopped and, you know, my, my driver, he was frozen. I had to to slap him to kind of wake him up. My TC, he didn't know what was going on. It was his first time being a TC. So I've just, you know, give me, give me the radio. I got the radio called in, you know, what was going on. And at that point it was like, Mm -hmm. get your weapons ready. You know, we might have to get out type thing. And it, it was kind of like the validating moment for me, knowing that my training had done what it was supposed to do. You know, all those rehearsals, those those hours of doing that boring stuff over and over again and talking about it, that everything that was said during those moments was was done, you know, the way it was supposed to. Not even, you know, it, it feels like forever when something like that happens. You got adrenaline pumping. Yeah, you, you can't really hear anything. Your vision gets laser focused, and and we saw we saw the guy that 
was recording it and triggering it. And we called it in on the radio right away. Um, we were like, Hey, there's a guy up on the Ridge. He's got a, uh, he's wearing a red dress. And then there, there's another guy. He just ducked in the building. Uh, you know, can you get him? Can you get him? One of the, the trucks behind me was actually with one of my squad leaders. He opened up the door and told the, the Iraqi police right there. And they just, they took off. They ran up there. They started, uh, pulling these guys out, pulled them out into the middle of the road, beat them up and arrested them. And they, and they, they put them in the back of, uh, one of the gun trucks for them to take to JVB and ended up being one of the, uh, the high profile, uh, targets. I forget the guy's name, but he was, he was on the deck of cards. I know that. And they were, they were making basically a propaganda video, uh, you know, trying to blow us up and then so they could air it later on. Kind of funny though, because we, we ended up getting to the, the hospital and the guy was roughed up more than us. So he had to get treated. We had to wait in line. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was certainly glad that, you know, you survived and, you know, it just, and that's the fog, isn't that what they talk about? The fog of war, the confusion, but you were able to keep your wits about you and were able to, to get the perpetrator. Yeah. So you, yeah, and that's, did you go that's back? That was the main thing, you know, the, the main thing was that we, we all walked away. You know, that, that was the big thing. Even the gun trip guys, they were, they were a little bit, uh, I think one of them had gotten injured. My, my TC had his, uh, shoulder dislocated, uh, from the blast. And then the, uh, the driver, I think he ended up actually getting sent home a little bit later on because it, it kind of traumatized him, you know, having that happen and then seeing, seeing that guy get arrested the way he was by the, the Iraqi police. So it was, uh, you know, it's, it's like I said, you don't necessarily have to be in combat, you know, to, to know or see some of those things that happen and have it affect you, you know. So you came back to the States in 2011? Uh, yeah. So they, I was, I was actually the prestigious, uh, position of unit movement officer, uh, since I was one of the only, uh, transportation qualified guys. So I got to, uh, send all of our stuff from, uh, bliss where we mobilized out of. And, uh, I got to come a little bit early to Spiker, and then I got to leave a little bit late. Uh, when I say a little bit, I mean a month on either end. <laughs> and uh, so I get I get a total of 400 days out of my 365-day uh, deployment for that. So, yeah, we, we ended up making sure that all of our stuff got loaded at K&B and got to come home around November 2011. So when you got back home, did you go right back? I mean, you were – still active i guess and then did you go right back into the distillery then or what did you do when you got home no uh actually i, I just kind of you know I, I was facing the same problems a lot of these other guys have coming back finding a job you know i, I couldn't find a job at that point just really uh bad market for the time so it was like you just applied wherever you could uh, you know you get on unemployment because you were just working for a year and, and the army uh, does that for you. So it was kind of like a figure out point in my life. Uh, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be? What's, what's going on? And then my wife ended up coming back a month later. We were just kind of traveling back and forth. I would go to Arizona where she lived for a month. She would come down here to Texas for a month. And we were, we were just both 
folks looking for jobs, trying to do that, uh, that whole cycle. And then finally around May, I got called up by National Oil Well and I got hired as a uh, assistant manager for a facility and she got called up by Union Pacific. So we were both basically entry-level managers for two pretty large companies. And we worked at each of those for about five years. The oil field started going downhill again, and I saw an opportunity to get on some, some active duty uh, orders. And so it was a C2 CRE mission, which is uh, basically if something happens west of the Mississippi, uh, like a nuclear attack or disaster response, you know, hurricane hits, anything like that, that we were the, the logistics piece. Uh, that would move everybody around. So that was a, a couple year mission. I got on active duty for that. And I think I was on active duty for another 400 days as a commander now at this point. And my wife wanted to quit her job and, you know, stay at home and raise kids. And I said, okay, you know, let's, let's do that. We've got we make enough to cover our expenses. And, and, you know, it's, it's not even, even in owning a business, it's not about, for me personally, anyway, about money, I value my time above everything else, you know, especially my time with my family. And, you know, and a lot of it goes back to my dad and seeing it, you know, the, the effects of that, of not spending time with your child, you know, and how I felt growing up. And I don't want, you know, my son to feel that. So it's, it's 2015, I said, you know what, I need to, my, my tour is coming to an end. I need, I need to do something. There's no jobs around here unless we're going to move, you know, somewhere else. Uh, I'd rather just start my own business. And, and we did that instead. And so 2015, we opened the, the distillery and, you know, became a legitimate operation at that point. And now we could bring our, our knowledge of what we were doing into, you know, the public sector and have everybody see it commercialize it well it's interesting you were talking about you know your grandfather and you know the recipes that he was running you know my wife is from virginia and they the moonshine that i used to was gifted came from the sheriff in the next county over so yeah and 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 actually so smooth you know which i'm sure you know when i look at your recipes and i look at the names of your product i'm thinking that has got to be some of the smoothest (laughs) moonshine that that's out there you know, I know you oh, take yeah. great pride in it. So tell us a little bit about the distillery, a little bit about the distillery business, maybe. Um, and then, you know, how we can get your product and what your message is to to the world about combat veterans. Starting with the, the distillery was really so I could be in control of my time. You know, it didn't have to, to really answer to, to anybody but myself. I was responsible for my success or failure at the end of the day. It's a very long, convoluted licensing process. So it was like nine months. We had to own this building and pay bills on it and couldn't generate any money. So it was a, it's definitely a, a difficult business to get in if you, don't, if you don't plan properly. A lot of people that I run into now, they think you need like a half a million dollars or $300,000 to start a distillery operation. And I actually, I started my distillery by reading a, a popular guidebook, starting a micro distillery for under $50,000 by Thomas Germain. And he owns the Texas legend distillery 
over here. I think it's over in, in Houston or, or Austin or somewhere in between there. And picked up the phone and, and called this guy and, you know, he answered a bunch of questions for me and he, his whole book was like how to get licensed in Texas. So I was like, this is perfect. You know, so I, I just kind of followed it to the T and I ended up opening my distillery for just under $25,000 awesome. altogether. Uh, once it was said and done, uh, from the time that I bought a building until I put my first product on the market. So, I mean, it, it, it required a lot of discipline and planning and, and building my own equipment and stuff like that. Hmm. Really, it just came down to time, you know, and I, and I got to spend my, my first son's first and second year. I got to be home with him, you know, instead of where we're trying to, you know, battle time and, and money and put daycare, you know, it's like you, you have a kid and then you, your daycare, I mean, it's just outrageous. I mean, some places are like, Two, three thousand dollars for for an infant, but I mean, you get, you have no option really because you've got to go to work. And then it's like now you're paying your house and you're paying for your childcare and you're not even raising your child anymore. And I, I just didn't think that was a good uh, a good deal for especially with with how I had grown up. Starting the the distillery was kind of a kind of a no brainer for me, and it was I can't let this fail. You know, my name is on it. That's what, uh, another big motivator that, that I did for myself, put my name on, the, on the, the brand, on the building, on everything. So it, it's, it's, in my mind, it's too big to fail, you know, and, and that's a big thing that entrepreneurs need to have is vision and, you know, doing visualization. Uh, had, a, had a good buddy of mine actually today, he mentioned something about, uh, you know, if there was somebody was paying you $1,440, every day, but they wanted you to take $30 of that and reinvest it in your business. Would you take that deal? You know, and of course you would, you know, this like 14, it's 2% of, of $1,400 every day. He, he puts it, he breaks it down and says, well, you have 1,440 minutes in a day. And if you're not, most people won't take 30 minutes to do anything for themselves or their business. You know, they're always busy chasing the sale or coming up with the next thing or whatever. And it's a very valid point. You know, if you just sit there and you visualize what you want in your business and where you see it going and what you want it to be, they, it becomes reality over time. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of agree with about you. it and there's a lot, a lot of books written on it, you know, and, and I, I kind of, I'm not going to lie. I, I went, I went the, the hard route for a good year and a half of, I can do this myself, you know, and I, I didn't need anybody's help. I had, I had Thomas Tremaine's book and I made one phone call and I was done. I was done asking for help. I was going to do it all my own and yeah. build up this, this empire, you know, and, and I, I'm just, uh, I was amazed at how much easier it is now with, finding other people in my industry, connecting with them, getting, you know, helps, not just making assumptions or spending hours doing, uh, you know, formative research on stuff when you can just call somebody and say, Hey, what's, what's the law behind this? Or where do I go to find this? And you get pointed in the right direction. You know, that just cuts down on so much time and effort and, and energy and definitely heartache, you know, where you're like, man, I just can't figure out this problem. What's going on. And I can just reach out to, to anybody. And actually I started a professional network for other distillery owners and breweries and wineries it's called the distiller brewer and vendor network. And I started it in January 
and we've released a monthly publication uh, every month, and we've also started getting corporate sponsors and, and all kinds of stuff for it. So, you know, and I, it started out as a vision, and I said, you know what, I want a place that's going to make this easier for people trying to get into the industry. And I was already teaching uh, brick-and-mortar classes, and, you know, I've got a distillery opening up in Beeville now. One just opened up in Kingsville, and there's another one opening up in Corpus. And, you know, two of them were students. Like, they came through. They bought they bought the class from me. They did the class. And, and really what it does is it cuts down on the time of navigating regulation because a lot of people aren't good at, uh, filling out paperwork and then having to deal with a state employee and, and stuff like that. And for me, it just came naturally with, with my dad being a civil servant, my grandfather being a civil servant, being military, having to deal with civilians on my side heavily in the logistics field. You know, it's just like, okay, I know how to talk to these people and, and, you know, I can talk to them easier than you. So just pay me and I'll, I'll do your, your application for you type thing. And that's, you know, it started started building. So now I'm not just selling alcohol, I'm selling education. Uh, I'm selling, uh, you know, basically a service to compress their time and, and get them from point A to point B a lot faster. And uh, I don't know if you, you, you met or talked to uh, Stephen Kuhn, but he's, he's kind of pushed me into the direction of, you're a consultant, man. And I was like, no, I'm not a consultant. Stop calling me a consultant. And, and ironically, over time, his vision for me of becoming a consultant, I, I have finally conceded that, you know what, yeah, I am a, a alcohol industry consultant. But, you know, it, it's just seeing so much in our in our industry and, and knowing the back end. You just walk into a liquor store. You know, the average person walks into a liquor store. They don't, they don't see all the work that goes into just getting that liquor to the shelf. It's a manufacturing task. It's a marketing task. It's a logistics task. It, it's, now you've got to get out there and sell it task. It, there's just so much that goes from getting – that bottle from a place like mine here, here in uh, just North of Corpus to the store in Dallas or the store in Louisiana, you know, wherever it's going, it, it has to, to go certain routes because there's just so many laws involved yeah. and, and we're a heavily regulated industry, you yeah. know, just, just to put the label on it is like a 40 day process, you know, to get that label approved and, and signed off on. And then, the feds approve it and then you got to get your state to approve it. And then if I want to sell it in another state, I need their state to approve it. You know, and people don't, people don't realize that there's a lot more than just like, Oh, this is a bottle of whiskey, $23. Why do I got to pay that much? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's definitely a natural progression, you know, to learn the industry, but to be on the cutting edge and to educate other people about it, how, you know, how can we get your product? How do people, do they have to be in Texas to get it or, can they order it through uh, the mail? Right now, yeah. Yeah, right now we have to be in Texas. So can so you, actually... Can uh, you gift it to people? Can you gift a bottle? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we, we sometimes sometimes we have to, uh, depending on what we're doing. Like if it's going to a, a spirits competition or something, it's considered gifted at that point. Uh, we're, we're allowed certain leeways, but not, not terribly a whole lot. Uh, and one of those, you know, it's interesting that, that you bring up is mailing alcohol. Mailing alcohol is actually still illegal. It's still there's, illegal? There's some, yeah. It, it's you, uh, The United Postal Service will not touch alcohol, and that's from a prohibition law. They, they will not do it, and they will actually charge you with a felony if you try to mail alcohol, you know, illegally. 
And especially if somebody like me was to mail it, because I have a permit and everything, they're going to come down even harshly, more harshly on me. Uh, because they, you know, they're like, well, you should have known even better than, than, you know, John Krothick trying to mail you something. So what you'll see is uh, FedEx, uh, UPS, they will actually ship alcohol. There is wine. Wine is the only one that can be shipped right now legally. And those are, are through special companies called Vino Shippers. Yeah. And they've got special contracts with the states that, that are allowed to receive them. So, like, there's even some states that still can't receive alcohol. So, I mean, like, you can't ship to Mississippi. So if you were from Mississippi and you go up to like Illinois and you decide, oh, I like the famous fossil winery. I want to sign up for their wine of the month club or whatever. And they're going to mail you a bottle of wine every month for, you know, whatever their subscription fee is. They can't ship it to, to Mississippi because Mississippi law says you cannot receive alcohol in the mail yeah. or by delivery. And, and Texas is kind of the same way. Uh, you know, you have to be in person to make a purchase. So, so that's another thing, you know, and actually I, I just, uh, we just finished bottling all of, so, so that's an, another part of my business now is that I do bottling for other brands and I take existing brands and I launch them in the alcohol space. Hmm. So Freedom Hard uh, is the one that I, I just finished up on uh, right now. We've got the first batch uh, and it's a, a non-chill filtered five-year Kentucky blend and it tastes like a young scotch. You know, it's, it's just absolutely amazing. It's, it's good color, good taste, good, good product all around, you know, and, and working with these guys has just been, it's really just changed my whole business, you know, and how I look at doing this co-packing because I, I bottled for other people before, but nothing on this scale where it's like, I'm basically launching their alcohol arm of their product and then getting to teach them like this is how you sell it. This is where we're going to put it. You know, this is the guy you have to talk mm-hmm. to. Go do this meeting, do that meeting. Uh, you know, you want to say this, not that. And, and it's just, it, it's good for me. I, 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 every time I talk to them, they're excited. They, they, they like to see the growth of it. You know, and, and I just, I remember myself when I was putting my whiskeys on the market, you know, and my products. And, and, and you just get, you get better at it over time, you know, and, and it's, it's just, uh, it's rewarding all around, basically, you know, get, getting to see the, a company like that, that already does so much, you know, they're, they're, they're giving, uh, like a dollar every time you buy a bag of coffee from them, they give a dollar to your choice of, uh, a charity, yeah. you know, in the veteran community. And, and we're working towards something like that with, with the whiskeys as well. I'm actually, I'm talking with, with two of the nonprofits, big nonprofits here in Texas, uh, operation Phantom support and the oath network about doing a, a spirit for them where they would actually get 80% of the profit from the sales of that, those spirits. And, you know, you're not going to find that anywhere else in the industry while Turkey does it every now and then, but they'll give like 10% back to, you know, DAV, Wonder Warrior Project, something like that. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think they even did it for, for one of the smaller ones uh, a couple of years ago. And it, it was like a, a 10 or 15% deal, but you know, I'm talking 80% back. And, and I can do it because I know the industry and I know what it costs me to make it and what it costs to do, you know? So, so it becomes, uh, it becomes a, a very good way to number one, raise awareness. And, and then people also want to support these things, but you know, they don't want to buy a keychain or they don't want to just 
give money, you know, they, money may be tight. They need, they need to feel something, you know, they want to feel a transaction a lot of time. Hmm. And that's why these, these folks do shirts and, and coffee and hats and stuff like that. Cause you want to feel like, Hey, I got, I got something to support and I can show my support further, further on, you know? Uh, and when you can buy a bottle of whiskey or, or a bottle of vodka and then you're entertaining and, and now you've got, you know, for an operation fan of support vodka there, somebody's going to ask about it. Like, Hey, where's this from? What's that for? You know? And you're like, Oh, well now you get a chance to, to talk about their mission and what they're doing. And then, you know, well, you're, yeah. you're helping, you're helping feed a veteran family or a first responder family. You know? Definitely sounds like a fascinating uh, industry, but the way that you're, you know, you're bridging into the veteran community is, it's innovative and it's nice to hear. And I think that it's an, it's an obvious way to help people. We're listening to Jason Justice on Straight Out of Combat of the Justice Label Distillery in Corpus Christi, Texas. What do you want people to know about combat veterans? And, uh, and what do you want your brothers and sisters to know that may come back, be coming back and going through some of those dark times? You know, that's, that's a pretty loaded question there, you know, and I've, I've got so much on the topic, you know, just from my own life and from seeing, seeing my, seeing my soldiers go through it and, and going through a lot of it myself, uh, you know, for, for the, the veterans out there, you know, just know, like I said, you're not the lone survivor. You're not alone. Reach out to somebody in your unit, talk to them, somebody that you served with, you know, those are those are those lifelong friendships you make during your time in service. It doesn't mean you got to talk to them every day. You know, even if it's you pick up the phone once a year and, and talk to somebody that, that you served with, like on an event anniversary or something, it, it's still good. It's good to get that that stuff out of your system, you know, and, and just talk about it. You know, there's a lot of services out there, too, through the through the VA and other uh, veteran service organizations where you can just call and, and talk to someone if you need to, or you need to vent, you know, we've all, we've all been to that point, but you know, there's nothing you can't overcome. You know I mean? You, you, you look at what you've done already and you thought you couldn't get through some of that, whether all you did was basic training and did your four years and then got out. There's the majority of the population and people around you have no idea what you went through in basic training. And for you, it's just natural because it was a phase of your life that you went through. You know, it's, it's like going through a trade school, you know, you don't know, you may not know what going through weld school trade school is like to the welder. It's nothing, you know, and and over here, you're just like, man, that guy's making 30 bucks an hour, just welding railroads. And, And I wish I had that job, but you didn't see, the years that he went through to perfect that craft. And it's, it's the same thing with the military. You know, uh, if you can kind of translate that in, in your mind, it, it, it kind of opens up your perspective a little bit. The, the big thing is done, that we're, we're trying to combat on the veteran entrepreneur and education side is, you know, don't be an, an entitled veteran. You know, don't, don't go around expecting stuff to get handed to you. You know, you still have to work like everybody else. We, we're going through a hard time to get to a better place. And that's, that's like the story of life. You're suffering now so that you have something later on that's going to pay off. You, you did the same thing when you, when you took the oath and you enlisted or, or you, you got commissioned. You know, you were doing it for that moment in that time. You made that decision. 
so that it would lead you somewhere else down the line. And, you know, whether it was to feel good about serving your country, whether it was, you know, to, to do better for your family or so you could go to school or whatever, you know, you, you did it for something. There, there was something there that led to something else. And that's, that's how all major decisions in your life work. Things don't just happen to happen, you know, and you've got to have that vision behind it. You know, think, well, now that you're coming back and you're having difficulty transitioning or, you know, you're, you're dealing with, if you're a civilian and you're seeing somebody having difficulty transitioning, just realize that it's, it's a part of life, you know, and it's nothing that can't be overcome. And it's nothing that is worth definitely taking your life over. Oh, that's great. Great advice there. And you have a, you have a unique experience having your, both your grandfather and your father and no, I'm not that you were able to see what your grandfather went through, but being able to growing up and seeing what your father went through and the experience um, when he returned from war, and then you being able to experience it as well, and having now a better perspective of what he was going through, what would you say you wish he had support on, and what would you wish that Americans would understand and be able to support the veterans that are returning from war? For for me. I, I had to adapt at a young age to start building networks for myself. So I, I kind of, I don't know if anything could really have made what I did easier. You know, maybe if I had, uh, I guess some more, if I had an investor when I was starting out my business, that would have been great. <laughs> but, uh, about, about everything else, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with how it's turned out and what I've went through personally for, uh, for everybody else. I mean, just realize that they're people too, you know, treat them like, like you want to be treated. You know, not everybody just because they were in the military don't, don't have this, this big grandiose idea. And, you know, it's like, it's like we said at the beginning of the show, you know, people are, they think we don't, we, we can't ask for help, you know, because we're, we're supposed to be bigger or stronger or whatever, you know, but at the end of the day, we're, we're people too. We want to, we just want to be treated like that. I mean, if you look at, some of the successful people out there, you know, Sam Walton was, was, you know, Walmart. He was a veteran. How often do you hear about that? You, you really don't. He's just treated like everybody else, you know, and that's kind of what his goal was, you know, and, and what you did or what you've done doesn't define who you are today. Uh, you know, people change, people grow, you know, and, and you got to look at that in all of your relationships. You know, a lot of people, uh, you know, when, when they think about marriage, they're like, man, I, I'm going to be married to the same man or woman for my whole life or whatever, you know, I mean, it, it's a little bit easier now, nowadays, cause you've got divorce and, and all that stuff, which, which is just, you know, in my opinion, horrible on, on families and children, but sometimes necessary. Uh, but you're not married to the same person. You know, that person is growing and changing just like you're growing and changing. Uh, you know, when, when I met my wife, she was a, a young officer who just, was excited and had fun, wanted to go hiking all the time, wanted to travel and all that stuff. And she, she still wants to travel. She still wants to hike, but now she's a mother. She's also been a manager. She's been a commander. You know, her, her entire demeanor has changed and, and so has mine over time. So it's like, we're, we're not married to the same person. You're, you're married and you're growing with somebody, you know, and it's the same thing on the outside world. You know, you join the military at 18, and you got out at, at, you know, 22 or 24, you're still, you're not that, 
that specialist or that mechanic or that infantryman anymore. That's something that you did. That's who you were at that point in time. Now you're a veteran. You know, you, you have, you've done it. You've done your time. You're still growing as a person. Don't, don't let it hold you back. You know, and, and I kind of, I always reflect back to Al Bundy, you know, don't be an Al Bundy, you know, where he's always just sitting around talking about Polkai and his, his winning touchdown. You know, you, you see that a lot. And for me, that's, it, it's really sad because it shows that you haven't grown. You haven't grown beyond that point in your life. Some great comments. Definitely humbled and privileged to have you here with us today, Jason. And uh, some great wisdom. We hope that those that are listening to Straight Out of Combat walk away with some more, some more wisdom or some help that they might be able to get through their own journey in life. But just want to say that I can't wait till I get to Texas and uh, visit your distillery. And uh, if you ever open up a unit in Florida, let me know. Be, be glad to talk about what you're doing and help you any way that we can. Yeah, definitely. I know. Uh, I know the Freedom Heart guys go to Florida quite a bit, so maybe you can you can meet up with him at one of his silky hikes and he can hook you up. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool. Well, thanks for being with Nina and me today. We appreciate you, your service to our country, and congratulations on your third boy. You know, eight pounds—that's not too small, really, but uh, that's good. <laughs> and uh, congratulations to your wife and you, and keep doing what you're doing, man. You're you're you know you're making a lot of people proud and uh, and we're behind you 110 percent well thanks yeah it was it was a privilege to be here and and being able to share a little bit of my story and, and a little bit of my my outlook like i said hopefully hopefully somebody takes something away from it even if just one does you know that's a that's a before they burn it down better take Sing a song